because he is forever. Look at how it's expressed in verse 2, right there before you. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now it needs to be said again, because the life of the world moves on. That before there was a world, there was God. Before there were galaxies and atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons and quarks, there was God. And God was there when he brought everything into being. The God who was there when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, that God was present at the beginning, was present then. The same God who was present when Jesus Christ was executed on the cross. The same God who was present when the Normans invaded England in 1066. The same God who was present when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a door in Germany. The same God who was present when Chamberlain came back from Germany in 1939 and said, peace in our time. He might have said, this is a declaration of war because that's when it began. God who was there when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. God who was there when those two planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City. But a God who will be there at the end. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And that's hard for us as human beings to grasp, except that we have some concept of space. It's amazing that this is a psalm of Moses. This is not a psalm of David. A Moses who would say that God was from everlasting to everlasting. He didn't know about outer space as we know it. But he understood a God who was from everlasting to everlasting. I remember my brother in his pagan days lying on his bed saying, what's above the ceiling? Well, that's the roof. What's above the roof? There are the clouds. What? We had plenty of those in England. What's above the clouds? So we went to stars. What's out there beyond the stars? More stars. I recently learned, and I didn't know this to my shame perhaps, there are more stars out there than there are grains of sand on all the shores of all the continents. And space continues on and is expanding. Our God is bigger than space. If you can even begin to grasp that space is forever, our God is absolutely forever and preceded space and fills all space. So we are in a microcosm of history, but dealing with a God who is from everlasting to everlasting. That has to be said. This is a moment in time. Some of us have been through many similar moments in time. Some of you have endured immense catastrophe in your own personal life or in national life. Some of you remember when Pearl Harbor was bombed. I remember the first time I saw American soldiers on the streets of Oxford. I remember the first time huddled in a basement in London I heard a bomb blow a half of a block away. But God, the Lord, is enthroned forever. So it puts everything in perspective in the first place. But secondly, we have to answer the question and deal with the issue of 
the great wickedness that there is in this world. Look at verses 7 and 8. You see there, God consumed by anger at our wickedness, for we are consumed as well by that anger. By thy wrath are we overwhelmed. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our days pass away under thy wrath. Our years come to an end like a sigh. So God sees our iniquities and they are before him even the secret sins of our lives. Those of you engaged in internet pornography, watching filth on television or for entertainment, God sees, he knows. And it is wicked. But writ large we have seen wickedness as those planes cut into the World Trade Center. Isn't it amazing that it's almost like watching Spielberg put together a little set on a table and zoom in on it as if it's larger than life? The wickedness is real. You don't hear psychiatrists playing psychological games today. Nobody is doubting that we have a world which, for all the globalism that's been talked, is at war in the hearts of people and with hate towards other people. And now there's a vengeance stirred in the hearts of Americans and around the world. Tremendous wickedness unleashed. There's nothing else to call it. It's not just that there are revolutionaries in Islam. It's not just that there are some folks who they call fundamentalists in Islam. It's not just that there is hate in the Arab nations by and large toward the West. That's all true. But there is wickedness in the human heart. And God knows it and it brings him great displeasure. My prayer that the great wickedness that we have seen and still feel our hearts broken by and the pain of those who endure it as they wait and watch and those engaged in the cleanup and those in politics who now have to find out how we root out this evil. My prayer is that we as a nation will continue to be driven to our knees. And just as we have prayed that there be a reevaluation of our own lives and what we are living for and a real repentance on our part. Because God uses the wickedness of men within the system of things to punish the wickedness of humanity. And a week ago as we met here to worship, I would have said to you, our nation needs a moral wake-up call. And we got one this week. May God bring us to our knees, not just to plead for those in pain and brokenness who need his help, but bring us to repentance, reevaluate and refocus our own lives. But let me draw you to the cross because the ultimate act of wickedness, dear friends, 
I do not say this lightly or glibly, and I wish there were a way to say it in this brief period of time that you would grasp it. The ultimate act of wickedness on the part of humanity was to take the Lord Jesus Christ, who represented all the beauty and innocence and magnificence of God, who was there at the beginning of time when the worlds were created, whose hand was in the creation of the atoms and life, and what we have become in terms of a humanity and a beautiful creation. The Lord Jesus was there. He came in his love. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. And Jesus did nothing but good. He wasn't like us, messed up. You couldn't point to any hypocrisy in his life. You couldn't point to any impotency in his life. He healed the sick. If Jesus were in Pittsburgh today, he'd clear out the hospitals like that if he were walking with that same power he was exhibiting. He healed whole villages. People streamed to where he was. Day and night he healed. He fed the hungry. He gave dignity back to prostitutes. He made money-grubbing executives philanthropists. He was spectacular. And what was really great is that all the creeps were drawn to him. And what was even more spectacular was the hoity-toity religious hypocrites couldn't stand him. But kings wanted to see him and hear of him. And that Jesus who raised the dead, who raised little sick children, who gave hope to just a band of fishermen that the world could be different. That Jesus, listen to me, we took and nailed to a cross and said to God, get out of here. We don't.